Hello, everyone, and welcome to LambdaCast, the podcast about learning functional programming from the perspective of a working developer. I'd like to introduce our cast for this episode. First off, Aaron Johnson. Hello, everyone. He's a newcomer to functional programming who works mainly in .NET and PHP. Next up, we have Kat Chuang. Hey, everyone. Kat is a designer learning functional programming with Haskell. Next, we have Stephen Kampal. Howdy, everyone. He's been working in functional programming for his whole career, currently in Haskell and Scala. And I'm your host, David Kuntz. I'm a static functional programming enthusiast working mainly on the front end and in education. So we'd love to hear from you. So please keep sending us your comments to contact at lambdacast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at lambdacast. If you want to talk to us in a more direct manner, you can join us as part of the FP chat community. And on there is a LambdaCast channel. Links for that are in the show notes to join that community, that Slack community. And if you like what we're doing, you can sponsor us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. And we have a big thanks this episode for our patrons. They are Scott Smith, Joel McCracken, Hacken Recibo, Seth Udict, Christoph Paria de Concieco and E. Mulder. I'd like to apologize for Dave's pronunciation of the Spanish names there. Not that I could do any better, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't perfect. We're, we're all very sorry. <laughs> you did your best, right? Did my best. All right, and that brings us to our topic for this episode, which is type parameters. This is something that we sort of kind of touched on a little bit throughout the episodes, probably in the early episodes where we're talking about kind of the major components of functional programming, some of the things you might want to do. Uh, I will point out that this is not, this isn't about functional programming sort of as a concept. Like there are certainly languages that don't have a static type system in which you would have something like a type parameter. So that, so your, this isn't particularly applicable to your lisps and your erlangs. This is more on the static side. But within that static side uh, of the world, type parameters are this really interesting space where you can get a lot of uh, really cool guarantees about what's going on in your code. And that's something that I don't see a lot of people using. So it's there, it's available, but it's kind of like a little on the scarier side, I think, for a lot of people. So what we want to probably start off doing is just talking about what the heck is a type parameter. Yeah. Does anyone want to take a stab at it? Um, I I like to. I I know that people like to think about them a lot as things that only occur within a standard library. Like Java programmers will use type parameters when they use a collection class like list or map, but they will less often define them. Uh, so what I like to say is that it's a parameter for your type in the same way that a parameter for your function is a parameter for your function, you know. So it's a way of sort of uh, taking one thing and having it vary based on an input. Yes. The way a parameter for a function has the function do different things, um, this is a way of making your types kind of do different things. Yeah. So if we were to compare this to something in a programming language that most people would be familiar with, like a, like a C-sharp, you mentioned Java, um, they would there call those generics. Okay. And if we were in C++, they call them templates. 
They added those a few years ago then. You see Sharp, you have like a list of T, for example, and it just means the list can have any type, right? That's a... Right. Okay. You say a few years ago. I think that was .NET 2. Okay, yeah. Quite a few years ago then. <laughs> quite, quite a few years ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, Java got them in Java 5. Yep. Yeah, kind of. There, there's a really huge difference. Um, that's that the languages that call them generics tend to be much more powerful in what you can do with the with the type parameter system than a language with templates. Uh, like C++'s system is very weak compared to Java and C Sharp system, to the point that it's not so interesting to even talk about C++ because the template system is so weak. Accordingly, if you're familiar with the template system from C++, and certainly I learned the C++ template system before any of these generic systems personally, uh, but I would say that most of the things that you know about templates, you have to throw about. You have to throw them out when you're thinking about generics or type parameters because they are much more powerful. The generics are. Yes, generic generics and, or type parameters. Um, it's interesting. I, I usually hear the opposite when people are comparing C sharp and C plus plus. It's usually you're you're gaining power going down to C plus plus. But in this case, it sounds like that's not the case. They don't really have the equivalent in generics. Their templates aren't aren't the same and aren't quite as useful or powerful. That's what it sounds like you're saying. Right. It, it depends on the kind of power that you're seeking, of course. So, for example, if you write a function in C++ with uh, templates, uh, you can make assumptions about what that type is when you're writing the body of the function that are not checked. So you can assume that you could add two Ts, for example, if you have a template parameter T. But when you're using a proper generic system, uh, the declaration of the function type tells you exactly what assumptions you're allowed to make. So if you have a type parameter t, then you must write a function that will work no matter what is substituted in for t later on. And that's where a lot of the power, the type checking power, comes from. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You're talking about how, for example, you might not be able to add two different types. Maybe you don't have an ability to add two objects together if that's the type you're passing. Precisely. Whereas um, if you do specify that, oh, this is a numeric type, when you're, when you're calling a generic type, then all of a sudden, okay, well, then we can assume that you can add those together. Yeah. I'll give you an example using numeric types. Um, you can write a function over numeric types that says, uh, for all t, where t is a type, is a subtype of the universal numeric type. This function takes two t's, and it returns a t. The really interesting thing about this uh, type is that you know, based only on the type signature, that the return value is exactly one of the arguments. And this is not possible in a uh, C++-like templating system. You're saying that um, it takes two t's and it returns a t. Yes. Um, but you know the t is numeric. Yes. The t is constrained to be numeric? Um, why would the t that's being returned have to be one of the input t's? Couldn't you combine them to produce a new value? That's also numeric. Uh, sorry, what was the question? You're getting two t's that you know to be numeric. So could you use numeric operations within that? Uh, it depends on what you mean by by know to be numeric. Uh, in this oh, I case, th I thought you were saying the t is constrained, so you know uh, yes, something more yes, about it. Yes, but there are different kinds of constraints. So in this case, I'm saying that you know that t is a subtype of some sort of global numeric type. Like you have a system that says you've got a class numeric. It might not exist. It doesn't matter. Like primitives have nothing to do with this, and all numeric types are sub are a subclass or a subtype of numeric. 
So your constraint is t is a subtype of numeric. And you can do this in many languages, TypeScript or Flow or Java or C Sharp, pretty much anything with subtyping and generics. Um, but this this function doesn't let you put any operations on numeric because because t doesn't occur in the constraint, right? So if numeric has a method plus on it, for example, mm -hmm. that method has to return numeric because you didn't say t extends numeric t, you said t extends numeric. Um, so there are a lot of so, so constraint systems are a whole other topic though. Um, you really have do have to understand the properties of constraint system to work out things like that. But each system gives you a lot of properties like that, a lot of ways of thinking about them. So in a system like the one that you were referencing, uh, which would be where your constraints are context bounds or uh, type classes, then you might have a numeric, uh, uh, you might have an addition operation on the numeric uh, constraint that allows you to add two Ts. But such a system ju just tells you different things about the function rather than the specific thing I just said, which is that it will always return one of the arguments. Yeah, we've done a we've done sort of examples of this earlier where we said if you have a function that um, like identity, you you have identity that takes an a and returns an a, and because you don't know anything about that a, you're forced to return the a that you were handed. That that's what's guaranteed by this system, by this generic system. And if you're giving, uh, like if you have a function that takes an a and a b and returns an a, you're actually in the exact same situation. You know that that a has to be returned because you couldn't return the b and you can't produce an a because you don't know what it is. So you're, you're talking about this sort of these guarantees over um, because you don't know anything about it, you promise not to mess with it at all. You can't stick your fingers in there and, and kind of like play with the data or peek under the hood. Exactly. The type signature like forces that. Yeah, and this is this is the number one property that makes generic systems useful and makes template systems so much weaker. So yeah, gotcha. That's good good distinction. Okay, so I think uh, I don't know if we've mentioned this word, but have we used the word polymorphic yet? We might no. have just accidentally slipped in. Okay, now is probably the time to bring that up. So, so you, when we add a type parameter, we are now saying that this type is polymorphic, right? That that this type now can have many shapes, and that's because what does polymorphism mean? All right. Um, well, there's the polymorphism that comes from object-oriented programming, which is not the type. The, the version that we're talking about here, that's the version where the behavior is sort of looked up dynamically based on the, the subclassing. Um, what we're talking about here is that when you have a polymorphic type, there's some part of that type that is left open. That's that's the parameter that Stephen was mentioning earlier, okay. where the type is now parameterized, right? So you're going to have to plug in a new type. So if you have a list of T, or a list of A, or you know, whatever your language uses, that itself is a sort of an, a function, the equivalent of a function with one argument still. It's a type with one argument, open. We're going to have to plug something in to make a real concrete type. So it's going to have to end up being a list of string or a list of int or a list of other lists of something. We're, we're going to have to plug something in. And that's what makes it polymorphic because now by having that type parameter, we can really plug any number, any type in there. And there's potentially, inf you know, there's infinite types we can come up with. So it now has potentially infinite uh number of combinations that you can turn it into. Not all of those are useful, but we can at least make infinite types out of it. Ah, okay. Uh, the Does the type parameter help with organizing all the like various outcomes that may occur from the polymorphic function? 
Okay, so the, having a type parameter is what makes you polymorphic. Because there's that type parameter, it means now you can take on ah, okay. you know, an infinite number of shapes based on what's plugged in, what fulfills that open type parameter. Would you say that if a function has a type parameter, then it's polymorphic? Um, so a type would have a type parameter. A type would, not a function? Well, so if you're in C-sharp or whatever, the functions do end up with type parameters on them. Uh, but I think we're, we're talking, if you just think of a class, like mm -hmm. list. List is polymorphic because it has T. Okay. Right? Dictionary is polymorphic because it has two type parameters, T and U. Or, you know, key and value. Okay. Is that making sense? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a function. that does, Or it's not really, function isn't even really the right way to think about it. It can be a function. I mean... If you can put type parameters on it, it's probably polymorphic. I, I like I like to think about the distinction between uh, subtyping polymorphism, the kind where you uh, are like polymorphic based on looking up a method at runtime, and this kind of polymorphism, the shapes look different. So subtyping polymorphism gives you these trees. So you can imagine a uh, collections library defined using ever more specific classes or interfaces until you finally end at the leaves of this tree, which are your specific types like ArrayList or LinkedList or HashMap or sorted map. And in a parametric polymorphism system, which is the type parameter. So I, I, I just threw out parametric polymorphic there, but all I mean is a polymorphism system based on type parameters. And in that in that kind of library, what you end up with is discrete types only, um, like your leave. What were your leaves in the original system? So your array list or your linked list or your hash map, and only those types exist. And anything that you want to uh, work over anything that existed within the tree in a subtyping polymorphic system. Like you want to write a function for any type of list, not just an array list, for example. Those functions also become polymorphic, and you use a constraint system to um, pick out the subset of those discrete types that you want your function to support. Yes, that's very good with parametric polymorphism versus subtype polymorphism. Yeah, I actually don't. Is there? A, I think that's the term that's used for that. Yeah, one. I think so. I yeah. haven't checked the yeah. books in a while, so. And, uh, of course, if you're not in a language that has subtypes, if you're in a, you know, an Elm or PureScript or Haskell or something, uh, they don't have, like, inheritance in the object-oriented sense. So there is no subtype polymorphism. There is only parametric polymorphism. So that is by far the, the most common uh, thing that gets referenced sort of within the FP circles and FP languages is this parametric, parametric variation. And one more time, parametric polymorphism. So you kind of described them both as trees, but in one, the very last branch, you had a discrete type the very, very end? Was that parametric or was that subtypes? Uh, for, of, of the branches of polymorphism, or of the types of polymorphism? Well, in, in a subtyping polymorphism system, the whole tree actually exists as types. And oh, okay. in a parametric polymorphism system, only the leaves exist as types. So only that very, very last end? Well, yeah, only the concrete ideas exist as types, and everything else, you control them with um, with type parameters. So in that, are you kind of narrowing down as you go down the branches? So you're not, the very, very first type is just to generic anything. And then maybe, for example, you're going to numeric. 
and then um, maybe you know, some other level after that, and then you're the linear integer. Yes, in, a, in a parametric polymorphism system, the what you would think of as the the root of the tree, your object class mm-hmm. or any, becomes just no constraint. It's just this function has a type parameter a or t. You don't say anything else about it. That means it can be anything, and so it contains any type that you like. Yeah. Okay. And then as you branch out, though, you you start narrowing that down slightly. Yeah. Okay. And branch out is maybe not the best word. About branches. That's our refine sort of. Yeah. And and like in C sharp, you have a ability to constrain your your type parameters or your generic your types in your generic signature to be a certain interface. For example, right? You could say so. This takes a T, it's a list of T where T is I whatever, you know, it has some property on it. And then that will let you know a little bit more about that T, and thus you'll be able to work only with those operations on the T's inside your function. So you might be able to do something, like if you had an addable interface, some sort of, you know, ability to add two things together, and, and your T is constrained to add, to being added, <laughs> then you could use that addition operator or addition function inside your function that knows nothing else about it other than it has this one function, or whatever's on your interface. And the subtype polymorphism, each branch is already a discrete type. And you maybe you're branching down from that, but you have your root object, and then you're already directly into specific integer type, or string, or character, or boolean. Is that correct, subtype polymorphism? Yeah, you would be inheriting from some base type and either overriding it, or if we're talking about subtype polymorphism, you're you're redefining the behavior, right? For in your subclass, you take you're overriding a, a virtual method on the on the base class and changing its behavior. That's what subtype polymorphism does, right? So when you when you call you have an A and you don't really know which subtype of A it is, but you know it has a foo method and you call dot foo on it and and the thing happens and you're you're really not sure. Unless you check its type, which foo is going to come out. So subtype polymorphism, your root of your tree is not necessarily, and probably not normally, your base object class or, or something like that. You're starting with a little bit of knowledge. Yeah, you would be starting with something that has that method. Yeah. The first level of your tree that has the thing that you're interested in, and then some number of subclasses are off of that, and eventually, you know, one of them implements the thing you care about. And, okay. and maybe in C sharp, you're starting with an, you're starting with an interface. And then moving from there. But that's that's sort of all subtype polymorphism, and we want to talk about parametric okay. polymorphism. Okay, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> but good, yeah, got it. It is useful to bring up that there are two separate types, and what most OO programmers are used to dealing with is mostly subtype polymorphism, and very rarely parametric polymorphism. Outside of things like uh, collections, like Stephen brought up. Okay. Clear enough for me, anyway. Hopefully, the audience is following along as well. Okay. Um, one thing to bring up here is that um, when we talk about this parametric polymorphism, uh, we'll we'll want to think about things that aren't. Uh, well, the first thing that occurred to me a long time ago was I want to start applying some of these ideas to things that didn't that weren't parameterized by anything else. They were like we've mentioned strings and ints, right. but strings and ints aren't parameterized; they're concrete types. This parametric polymorphism means you are parameterized, so you must. And the easiest, the most uh, obvious thing I think for most people is to think of a collection. A collection clearly is not a, a complete type in itself. It's parameterized by something else. right? You have to know what's in the collection. Or what things, if it's like a, a tuple or a, a 
you know, a dictionary or something like that, hash map, there's, there'd be at least two. So this only deals to things that have at least one type parameter. If it's just a, a foo, you know, or a person class or something like that, that's not polymorphic because that's a concrete class. Are, are these, uh, collections of one type or would it be possible to have a collection of multiple types? Oh, definitely. I mean, that, um, like a hash table or a dictionary is a good example of okay. that. You have one type for the key and one type for the value. Right. Or a tuple. You'd have, uh, depending on if it's a, a two-element tuple or a three-element tuple, you'd have a type parameter for each one of those. Ah, okay. That There's also sense. the really interesting idea of an aligned collection. So an aligned collection is, I'll give you an example. One, let's say you have a list of functions. Um... You don't know how many functions are in the list, but you know that each function's output type is the argument type of the next function. So this, so the aligned list of functions has an input type which represents, it has two type parameters. One of them is the input type of the very first function, and one of them is the output type of the very last function. And then everything in between you don't know it. But all the functions can have different types in this kind of collection. So this is sort of like a data type that could represent almost like function composition? Yes, exactly. Where they, they kind of all chain together, and eventually it will be the thing at the end, and therefore yeah, the output exactly. type would be the one that you've... Yeah. You don't care about the internals. Yeah. Just one of the many things that you can do with a generic system and not with a template system. Okay, well, probably uh, most people who have worked in a static language have dealt with... Uh, you know, standard library, and they've dealt with these type parameters when they're instantiating their, you know, their lists and their dictionaries and things like that. Uh, but I'd like to move us off that path into sort of where are these used uh, not just in the sense of a collection. So this would be sort of, um, you know, the space of you have something that's normally concrete, like your first instinct might be to write a completely concrete version of this, but what we're going to bring up is this idea of Maybe you don't do that. Maybe instead you you put a type parameter in there and, and some of the benefits that that confers. So, Stephen, do you want to take us through maybe uh, an initial motivating use case for where a type parameter would give you some some useful functionality that you might not be very obvious? Uh, sure. So let, let's say that you have a very simple data structure that refers to let's say, two directories and three files, right? You have this notion of loading a directory, maybe, and like a separate notion of loading a file. So one of the things that you can do with type parameters is say, I'm going to declare my data structure with two type parameters, one representing directories and one representing files. And this data type can have whatever the correct number is for my application. It could be anywhere from two directories and three files, which is our example. It could be an, a list of, of directories and a non-empty list of files. And what benefit would that give over just saying, uh, like kind of hard coding that in there? Well, you have to ask, what do you want to be in the data structure? Do you want, I've mentioned the notion of loading. You can say that the data structure starts out as a reference, like a path right? But then you have these load functions, one for directories and one for files, that return a different data type. 
Now, if you don't type parameterize, your choices are pretty bad here. You can define the data type to represent the loaded data. And then you can't structure your data before loading. You have to load, and then you can structure your data. Um, you could define the data type to represent it before loading. But then the problem is, well, now I don't have anywhere to put my files and directories once I've loaded them, anywhere that, that's well-structured. Or I could define the data structure twice, in which case I'm just duplicating. I'm just repeating myself, right? So in this case, you might have a sort of data structure for holding, like, listing the contents of a directory, and then later for, like, actually loading some of, one or more of those contents of the directory. Yeah. Like, actually reading in those files. And you'd be, it would be mostly the same structure, except that the data would be different, whereas before it would be either a it's-in-progress kind of a value, or maybe I have it kind of value. Later, it would be a, well, here's the value. Yeah. Right. I've actually loaded it or I failed to load it or something like that. Yeah. And you would, and the structure apart from that would be the same. You'd have the same sort of like elements in it. Yeah. And so, so my answer in this case is to have two type parameters, one for directories and one for files. So what can I do with this? I can start out, uh, I can build a structure that represents the reference form. What I mean by that is say the paths to the directories or the Java IO files, if you're talking about Java. Or they could be URLs. It doesn't really matter. And then your type parameters are, that is, the type arguments that you pass for your concrete type that represents this are, let's say, my data structure URL file, or my data structure path path, right? Okay. So now I write my two functions. One loads a directory, one loads a file. Uh, the directory loader function returns a list of files. The file loader returns a string representing the contents of a file. Now, I can, I can buy map. That's map for two type parameters with my data structure in these functions. And now I have a, uh, my data structure of list of file and uh, string. So, so you're saying that the input type was some sort of like directory of, you said like a URL or, you know, path, like path and path or something like that. Yeah, sure. And the output is going to be directory, the same type, but the type parameters can be different now. Instead of it being like strings, it'll be a list of strings because we've enumerated it or a Java IO handle or whatever it is that this function is doing. Yeah. Like we've changed the type parameter. So it's the same type that we're returning. The directory type is the same, but the type parameters have changed to reflect the work that this function has done. Yeah. The, the changes that have occurred. And moreover, it's structured in exactly the same uh, data type, the data type that you've written, uh, that you were using before. You just know that because you, you are, are using different type arguments, it now represents something different. But it's been structured in exactly the same way. So um, if we were to boil this down to like the simplest example of, of this kind of like the type parameter changing, um, maybe we could talk about something like you have a form and this form has a single field in it and it's like email. And you might just write that as, you know, it's, it's a, it's like a class or, uh, you know, data type if you're in like Haskell or Elm that contains a single value string. That's the email. And you have a sort of validate email and that probably gives you back like a maybe string like or something like that or maybe just says true or false it just kind of tells you if it worked but there's no way to really track like 
is this an email before we validated it, or is this like an email after we validated it kind of thing? But if instead you had a form be parameterized by a type, and that original type was, say, unvalidated string, and then you made another type called validated string, then you could have a function that takes in a form with the type parameter being unvalidated string and returns back to you a form of validated string, except that it can fail. So you, you need some, some form of maybe in there to, uh, to deal with that. But you can sort of like encode the status of what's going on in the same way that you're talking about loading files, kind of changing the state of wh where you're at with this data. You can sort of change what's in, uh, you can lift that up to be represented at the type level. Is that right? Is that kind of what you're going for there, Steve? Yeah. And, and I think you had mentioned this, maybe it was earlier, you, you'd mentioned sort of moving things from the, the runtime level, the value level, up to the type level, like maybe is a good example of that? Yeah, yeah, maybe is a great example of that. So I'll, I'll just take from the example that you just uh, supplied. Normally you might think of a, a validate email function, like you were describing, as transforming the entire form, right? So it, it might take a form of unvalidated string and return a maybe a form of validated string. With a type parameter, that is just a single step away from a form of maybe a validated string. So now you have three different cases that you might be representing with this validation system. Just because you wrote a validator for the email field doesn't mean that you have to represent that as closing off the entire form. Right. So a form of maybe a validated string is a form and all the rest of the data is still there, but the the email may not be there. Right. And if it is there, it's validated. So, for example, in Haskell, uh, there's a function called sequence in this case. And I could say sequence on a form of maybe a validated email and sequence would return a maybe a form of validated email. So instead of being constrained to go even from just the two states that you mentioned, I have a third state now. With the maybe is wrapped around the entire form. Or not. It's 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 up to you. And so that, that third step there, what might be useful with the sequence, is if you had multiple... Cause it, that sounds fairly simple, but if you all of a sudden had multiple maybes, like there was email and there was... Maybe we could validate their address or validate whatever else. That may be a form of validated strings in this case. Could check all of those. Is that part of what sequence is doing for you? The word sequence is kind of, um, it's, it's not the, the very best function name. So it doesn't really have anything to do with, with collections or anything like that. So we're not, it's not necessarily useful in the sense that it's going through that whole form. We're not, I'm not understanding then. It, it sort of moves the order. So instead of a form of maybe validated email, it becomes a maybe of form of validated email. So either you have the form or you don't, versus you have a form and maybe you have the validated email or you don't. It's, it's allowing you to move sort of your structure, and, and that's a standard function that you don't have to write that exists that allows you to play with the structure because it's parameterized in this way. Okay. And, and I think I'm following there. It just... And maybe I'm misunderstanding why that's useful, but it seems to me that putting that in front is nice that you have the maybe of the form of validated. It just seems that that's, that you might get more use. And again, I... it, it makes it very easy to sort of swap between your shapes because there might be at some point where you are saying, 
um, if I got that and I got this other thing, and now you're sort of like chaining maybes using the the logic for chaining maybes together, where they all have to have succeeded for it to be considered a success. Um, it allows you to kind of like swap your shapes around to fit the existing functions that work on those shapes. Like there's lots of functions that work on maybes uh, that don't care about the internals, right? They care about the structure of maybe and the fact that it might not be there. Oh, I see. And it allows you to take your maybe that's embedded inside the form and pull it out so that you now have the maybe on the outside and the form on the inside. So now you're dealing sort of with the semantics of maybe versus dealing with the semantics of form, which have to then take into consideration the semantics of maybe, which is embedded inside it, and allows you to pull it out. Ah, I like that explanation. That does make sense. And, and another um, another case where this might be useful is, or another place where this also becomes useful is, the, I think the simplest case for this like validation thing would be in, in like a language with ADTs and like maybes would be, you would probably like you'd have a string and then you'd run it through the validator and you'd get back like a maybe string in that in that field. So you'd have this this data, you know data structure with a maybe string in there, and it's it's validated if it if it passed, right? But then you have to deal with that maybe every time you deal with your data structure, like every time you have your you do form dot you know email or something like that, you're gonna have to check that to see well do I actually have one or do I not have one? And by moving it up to the type level, even if it's a maybe at the type level, <laughs> by moving it up to the type level, what it means is that you are sure of what you have inside your data structure. That, that email stops being a maybe string and becomes an A. And the A is defined now at the type level. So if at the type level that A or T, you know, whatever you use in your language for, for generics, if that, if that's defined to be maybe a string, then fine, the A is a maybe a string. But if it's a validated string, you now never have to worry about that case. You can just do form.email and you know it's a validated string, you can move on with your life. Like, so it allows you to get out of this trap of like having maybes, like, all you know, all of your code, and enforcing everything that ever touches that ever to every single time check once again is that a maybe? Right. Like like at every point, even if just two lines up, you check that it was a maybe. You know, you did your case of kind of thing, and and then later on you want to do it again. You, you still have to case of again to make sure that you're not you know trying to unwrap something that's a nothing. Versus if the type parameter was set to validated string or just string. Every, all your code in there knows, okay, this this field here, this this T field or A or whatever, is definitely a string, and I can just use it. Yeah, the, the goal here is that you are making your function types more precise, while at the same time making them easier to write. Yeah. Because in the case of do something to this where the type is form of string... <laughs> you are writing a very specific case. It's only when the form has a string for the type parameter or form of maybe string or form of unvalidated string or whatever it is. You're writing just that one case. One thing that's confusing me, like I like all these explanations. I understand how it's helping with management of like working with all the maybe types, but um, what's making me confused is like how is a data type, data record type different from a type parameter is that basically the same thing, or is it totally different because one's working with functions and one's working with um, data instead? Um, well, polymorphic functions, functions with, with type parameters, are typically written over polymorphic data types. Ah. They tend to go hand in hand. Um, so let's say that you have a, a setter on a, a field, uh, on a string field. Uh, your form data type. So the setter for the original 
unparameterized form. Looks like it's, it's a higher order function. It takes a function from string to string and or email to email if you have a new type for that and returns a function from form to form in the Haskell sense. In Java or something, maybe instead you would write a method that takes a string to string function and a form and returns a form, but it means the same thing. But once you introduce the type parameter to represent the email field, for example, in this form, then also that function gets two type parameters. And one of them represents the original value of the email field, and one of them represents the output value. So instead of a f email to email to form to form, you have A to B to form of A to form of B, where A and B are the two type parameters. And the other interesting part here is that it is usually more. If you introduce one type parameter for your data type, the functions over it Will acquire sometimes one but maybe two or three and as that allows you to say before i took a string a function from string to string and a form which internally always has a string therefore we'll just return a form because the string got converted and now since it's a form of a or form of t i have to have a t and a u because i'm going to take a string and a form of t and return a form of u because that thing inside could have gone from a t to a u yeah yeah and and it will and you can tell that just by reading the type. But but if you only had one type parameter on it, then you would only take a function from t to t, and you would constrain that the form, while going from one value of t to another value of t, can't go from one type to another. So you're allowed at the function level to kind of control what's, what's an okay transformation there. Yeah. And in most cases, that would be, that would be wrong, I would say. Well, if it was like a... Right. I guess it depends on the semantics of the, the data structure. If that t is supposed to be held constant, or if it's supposed to change over the lifetime of that that data. Well, the the thing about the thing about that is that even if you only expect to have one substitution uh, for a type parameter, it still pays to represent to to model the cases where it can change. Because first of all, in my experience, once you have once you go so far as to have one substitution for a type parameter, there's usually a case to be made for a second one or a third one. Gotcha. The second thing is that even if you don't come up with a second or third substitution, your self-documenting properties and reliability of your functions is still better if they model the type-changing case. So even if you will never use form at more than one type parameter, if your function is declared t to u, to form of t to form of u, then it is type checking that you're actually using the function. You're actually using the function? Could you go into that a little bit more? Sure. So if I have a data type, a form of a, and I'm transforming that a field to b with an a to b function, and my return type is declared to be form of b, a's cannot appear anywhere in my result because I said form of b. Right? Mm -hmm. Which means, secondly, I don't know what B is because I'm not working in a template system like C++. I don't know anything about B. The only thing I know about it is that I can get Bs by calling this function, which takes A's. I see. So if you had a, a function that was T to T, or A to A, and you took a form of A and returned a form of A, 
you could just return the input. Precisely. Um, whereas if it's a form of B, you have to run the A to B function. So that's the only way to produce it. Yeah. And you can even like have cases where miss you have missing data. So let's say that you had five fields that were all of type T. You might return your form with three of those fields modified with the function, but two of them you missed. I see. Um, that's possible under the under the single type parameter map. Yeah, this forces you to be honest in your implementation. Stephen, do you think the use case of your HTML, your web page where you parameterize HTML like you did, like we'll link to the talk, but for people who haven't seen the talk, do you, do you want to go over that? And do you want to go over the 100 functions for 10 data structures kind of concept? Yeah, sure. So what I wanted to do in the talk at a type parameter was show that even in the most incredibly prosaic cases, you could still get at least some benefit out of having a type parameter. In that talk, mostly I emphasized some of the correctness of setter uh, things, mm -hmm. uh, which is what I was just describing with your form case, uh, because you get the same thing whenever you pick anything as a single field. When you have an A to A, you can't guarantee you actually ran the function. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And moreover, you can use type inference to actually figure out what it is that your functions are doing. You can figure out which functions care about what's in that single field. You can figure out which functions replace what's in the single field. You can use it to figure out which functions just return the argument mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. And that's just for a single field. So the next step really is to think about more complex cases than that. The other thing I wanted to emphasize in that talk is that adding a type parameter is not just for collections libraries. Uh, it It is useful in all kinds of data types um, that you might be defining because it allows you to be much more flexible in how your code is handling those data types, uh, in what order you're calling functions, at what phase you figure out this part of your program. out. That is to say, let's say at some point you want to parse something. Let's say that you have a larger data structure that only takes a parsed form of some string, for example. Well, can you put it in the data structure without parsing it? Only if it's type parameterized. And then you're really free to decide when things happen, at what point, when you are uh, refactoring your application. It's, it, and that'd be like you get a request, and your request is parameterized by unprocessed JSON. And then you can run that through your JSON parser, and you can get back a request that's parameterized by parsed JSON. And you didn't have to, like, come up with this weird case for, like, well, it says it's got JSON, but we don't actually have the JSON yet, so we haven't parsed it yet. So we have to put, like, a null in here or wrap it in a maybe or something. you got to go through these contortions because the type is sort of forcing you into an order of action that you don't necessarily want to commit to. Yeah, the simplest case is actually, is actually just the commutative box, right? So a untyped parameter, so we want to go from the top left corner to the bottom right corner of a box, right? And, of course, in a real application, the shape is going to be much more complicated with many more paths. But there's two paths that you might imagine from the top left to the bottom right. And one of them goes first to the top right and then down to the bottom right. And the other path goes from the top left down to the bottom left and then right to uh, your destination. And... If your data structures are not parameterized, then you're locking yourself into one of those paths. 
and woe betide you if you got it wrong. If your data types are parameterized, you get to pick your path, and you can just change your path whenever you like uh, just by calling your functions in a different order. Uh, so with your uh, with your parse JSON example, well, some of the functions that operate on requests are going to look at the JSON, and they're going to care that it's parsed. Some of your functions are not going to care. Why should you declare those functions in such a way that it appears that they care whether the JSON is parsed? Instead, they can be polymorphic in, in the type sense, being declared with a type that says, I don't care whether the JSON is parsed or not, or whether it even exists, because this function doesn't deal with that part of the, of the request. Right. They just take a T. They pro by taking a T, they're promising, I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to care about this. I don't do anything with this. And they go off and they do some other thing. And that way, you can have as many variations of a JSON-y kind of a thing that goes in there as you want. And that function will never have to change. Exactly. And you won't have, and when you read that function, you know that not only does it not care, it's not going to care in the future. So if the type substitution does happen to change, just because of you reordering your code, for whatever reason that you have, there are plenty of reasons that your order of function calling might change, um, just because it's more convenient, then that function will just keep working without you thinking about it. And that happens a lot in applications, I've found. Now, one thing I want to bring up that uh, when you're first kind of like thinking about adding type parameters to what would you would normally consider to be concrete data, the thing you're going to realize is that you now have to fill in that type parameter every place or, or say that I, I don't care, uh, which is the case you were just bringing up. So a lot uh, you're going to be having type signatures that are a little bit bigger. They're going to have to be specifying these type parameters. A lot of times you can use an alias, and a lot of libraries will make little aliases for sort of the different steps that the data moves along. So you can have the sort of the, the unvalidated form is a form of type unvalidated email address, and then you can have another type alias that's like validated form that's a form of type validated email address. So you can you can kind of like use type aliases to kind of smooth that over and make it look like you're dealing with a, a single concrete type, when in reality, under the hood, there is this parameterization going on. So let me ask, and this is going to be a real basic question, considering where we're actually at in the in the cast here and what we're talking about. But So we're saying data structures a lot, which I'm thinking is just, for example, a struct in C-sharp, which is something that's storing a couple of different properties. And when we're saying we're adding a type parameter to that, we're saying that it's kind of an extra property that's, that's um, along with the data structure. Is that correct, first of all, in the understanding of it? So there's an additional property on my struct that it's, it's a parameter? Or is that incorrect? Yeah, the, the, uh, no, that's, that's oh. right. Um, it's just that that property is always determined statically at compile time rather than dynamically at runtime. Oh, okay. And one of your fields will be of that type. One of your fields will be you know, a T. Mm -hmm. or, or it'll be like a list of T. I guess you could you could kind of or do Or two of them. Or, or two of them, yeah. How many type parameters you have. So some number of the fields. To another one. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so with these functions that are working with my um data structure that now is type parameter parameterized, um they have some way of saying, well I only work with this type of that data structure. Is that correct? That you might have that, you might not. But you could, your functions would have the capacity to say, oh, I only accept this after, in our current example, JSON has been parsed. Yes. Or, or you say, I don't care if it's been parsed. 
Right, and then you look at T, and then you're guaranteeing you, you're not going to touch that part of the data structure. Or you might even say, I only want to run parse, if, for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. But if you're the parsing function, you only want to do that on unparsed, because what, what are you going to do if it's already parsed, right? Like, you probably don't want to operate on that. That does make sense. I don't know how you'd represent that. In, I don't know if the functionality is even there to say, oh, I only take a struct, and only if it has the property of this, or only has a field set to this value. Like, I don't think that's in, in super C? in C sharp. In C sharp. I don't know if that's super easy to do. Yeah, definitely. You can do that. You're talking about that specific case, right? Oh, no. Um, so in C sharp, uh, what, so let's say that your types are unparsed JSON and parsed JSON. Mm -hmm. And these are classes or interfaces. It doesn't matter. They're mm -hmm. types. Um, so, uh, you would write a function, uh, that takes an argument that is request of parsed JSON. We are saying the, the parsed case is what you're interested in, right? Sure. So its argument type is request of parsed JSON, right? And that function is not polymorphic uh, because it doesn't take a type parameter. It's, it has a specific requirement about what must be there. Um, yes, but the, the data structure, so it takes, a, it takes something of that type. But how do we get from the data structure to saying this is data structure of that type? So, so if, if request takes a type parameter, requ request is not the type of a value. So, you can't just declare a variable that is request, for mm -hmm. example, because it's missing a type parameter. So, in fact, all functions that take a, a request as an argument or return a request as a result must have a type application, I mean they must pass something for that T. Now that can be a type parameter on the function itself. So in C sharp, if you have less than and greater than with T in it, uh, just after the function name, anywhere in the arguments or the result type, you can use T and you can say request of T. So that would be, that would be the polymorphic case. But if you wanted to require it to be parsed JSON, then you would simply not have your function take a type parameter. It would just take an argument type it would take an argument of type request of parsed JSON, and you would write that as request uh, less than sign parsed JSON greater than sign in C sharp. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I'm following. The only the only my only disconnect is is the conversion of and and maybe this is hard to convey in a podcast anyway. My only disconnect is saying okay, I have my data structure and one of the fields is um, a type parameter. So think about it this way. Could you write a function that goes from list of string to list of int? Is that a function you could write? Like, as an input, I take a list of string, and I return to you a list of int. And inside, I'm going to, like, map over it and convert every string to its length. Yeah, you, yeah, for sure. That, that's the easy example, so right? So that's exactly what we're talking about here. List is parameterized by a T in the same way uh, request is parameterized by a T. And that T, in this case, is like, parsed or unparsed JSON or, or whatever your your case is. And you're just running a function that takes a request of this type parameter to a request of that type parameter. In the same way that you can do a list of string or list of uh, string to a list of it. So if it was not the right type, that's when you're passing it to requests? Or does request handle it if it's the right type and just say, oh, it's already correct? So request would be the, the type here. That would be like list. Okay. So you would have a function that's like... Um, Parse, parse request data or something like that, right? 
and that would take a request of type unparsed JSON and give back to you a request of parsed JSON. Okay, that's, I think, the piece I was missing. I just wanted to make sure that that had to exist some somewhere. You'd have to write that concrete version somewhere, and then it would only be usable if you had chosen unparsed JSON for your T. Right? You have to fill, you have to create a request with that particular type plugged in there. Just like your function that's list of string to list event only works if you've chosen string for your T, for your list. Sure, yeah. You can't say, I want to convert strings to int and then pass it emails, booleans, whatever. Yeah, exactly. That, that would give you a, you'll get a compile time error with that, which is what Steven was mentioned earlier. Instead of these being like maybes or whatever, and they're happening like at runtime. Yeah, and then all of a sudden it crashes if you pass the wrong thing. Yeah, or you have to account for it by a maybe type structure where this this runtime representation of it might not be there. Here you're moving that to the compiler level where it happens statically okay. at compile time. Yeah, I, I'm following, and I'm sorry to interrupt. I know that's maybe a little basic. Oh no, that's a good question. So there, there, are, there are kind of like um, two transformations in the way of designing programs that type parameters bring. So when I think about total programming, like programming without exceptions, where every function is guaranteed to return a result. Um, I think of the, the shift to uh, total programming as occurring in two phases. The first phase is you add maybe to all your functions to make them return something. And the second phase is to to get rid of all of the maybes <laughs> because you're using more types to actually guarantee that you're going to come up with the correct result and you're not going to even be able to call the function if it's not going to be able to return a correct result. So you're going from dynamic modeling of of uh, partiality with with a maybe return to to a static modeling of partiality by using more specific types. And that sort of um is it sort of like draws out the number one flaw of the sort of Lisp philosophy for me. So I was a really big time Lisper in the last decade. And I definitely agreed with the notion of it's better to have 100 functions for one data type than 10 functions for each of 10 data types. Absolutely. But the idea of, of making a program more total in this way like calls out the problem with that kind of thinking. The problem is that you don't really just have one type, right? You have a you have one type trying to play a bunch of different roles in each of which you're making a different set of implicit assumptions about it, right? Of course, that that doesn't make it any less uh, inconvenient to take away those 100 functions and split up your types so that you have more precise modeling. But what type parameters and polymorphism says is that you can keep your 100 functions, just have more types. Uh, the reason is that when you have a t when you are splitting your types by adding type parameters instead of defining different named classes or data types, then many of your functions become polymorphic. So you have more types, but also those functions that you wrote, they work on all the different types that you have implicitly defined uh, just by vir virtue of becoming polymorphic. So I think that's really the resolution to the Lisp dilemma of how do you deal with the explosion of types 
to have more precise modeling, but still have a good library of convenient functions for working with those types. So would it be fair to say that an example of what you're talking about here is in Lisp, you would have just a list where in like a C sharp, you'd have a list of T. You're going to have a bunch of functions that work on list, but they work on every possible variation of list, where in list, you're going to have Lists, but certain functions expect the thing inside there to be a tuple, and other things expect it to be a string, and other things expect it to be some other, you know, like you said, the list carries this huge load of, of every possible variation of thing you might want. And so you can reuse these generic kind of list functions because the T is polymorphic. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Or are you saying at a broader sense of a thing that is parameterized by another thing, I write functions at that level that can be reused across all types that are themselves parameterized? No, I, I, I do mean the former sense. The former, okay. Because the, the latter is possible, but only in certain languages, right? Your Haskells, your Scalas, your PureScripts, or anything with higher kind of types are really the only ones where you can write that kind of thing. And that's a very small subset of languages. Yeah, that sort of gets into the idea of your constraint system. And I mentioned earlier that different constraint systems give you different properties that you can read from the type. Right. A system with subtyping will tend to have subtyping-related constraints. Mm -hmm. That's just a way to bridge you from subtyping polymorphism over to parametric polymorphism. It's a very useful bridge, absolutely, but it's very underpowered in many ways. A system like Haskell or Scala will give you ways to say, well, this notion of sequencing um, is very useful, and there are a lot of other functions that can be derived from it. So if I can derive the notion of sequencing for my data type, then it's also going to get all of these other functions that are derived with the same notion, that are derived from the idea of sequencing. Right, and the sequencing only relies on the fact that you have a certain structure. It knows nothing about the specifics of the structure or very little about it, but is able to do a lot with sort of just this general, um, I know that you're a thing parameterized by another thing. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a structure, yeah. Okay, so let's push you to the end. I think we had one last thing that comes up that I know I've been asked about before when it relates to type parameters, and that's the use of something called phantom types. So I'd like to just cover this a little bit, explain kind of what it is, maybe a use case of why you might even care about this, because I think people are pretty confused when they first hear about this. So uh, phantom types, does anyone want to take a stab at that? Well, I've never heard of phantom types, so my question, my question would be, what are phantom types? <laughs> so not, not cat. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in the same boat, Kat, don't worry. I mean, I, I guess I heard about it about, I, I'll be honest, about an hour ago when we were talking about it before the episode, but I wasn't really paying too much attention then, so. Alright, well, they're, uh, they're not a spooky type that comes and haunts you in your sleep. They're just a type that appears in, they're a type parameter that is never used in the sort of implementation of the type. Let's say you had a list, for whatever reason. You had a list that was parameterized by T and U. Now, I can think of the use case for T in my list. That's the element of the list. But I can't really figure out what the U would be useful for, right? Like, what would we care about the U being there for? So it's just kind of like this extra type parameter that doesn't seem to be used for anything. You still have to give it a type. You still have to fill something in. But you could put in string or int, and it really wouldn't change the behavior of this list, because the list only really cares about the T. So it would be kind of wasted in that context. But there's a more interesting context where you do start to use that extra type parameter to encode information, like Stephen's been talking about, at the type level to get certain guarantees about it. Do you want to take that a little bit further, Stephen? Yeah, there are actually lots of interesting language-specific use cases for it that give you really 
simple ideas. So, for example, you can use them to recover information about your types at runtime. Now, if you write a polymorphic function that takes a t, then you don't know what that t is, right? But let's say that you define a, uh, a data type called gimme, and it has a phantom type parameter, p. And you change your polymorphic function to take a t and a give me of t. In some languages, if you can prove that that gimme of p is a gimme of string, that entails proof that t equals string, the type, which means that your other argument is a string. So this can come up in a lot of different data modeling cases where you want recoverable type information. That's a little language specific. There was a pretty uh, interesting use case that exists in the implementation of the Ermine language, uh, specifically its library for working with, with these complex charts. So if you've ever looked at a charts library, you know that they have tons of settings about how to display the chart, what data to put in the chart. And so we wanted to define a system that would let you specify the settings, but would prevent you from accidentally overwriting your own settings. So the way that we did that was introducing a phantom type parameter that would track at the type level, there was no data underlying it, but it would track at the type level whether or not you had set the value of a particular setting. And so the type of your settings would actually reflect which settings you are making, but it wouldn't use those types anywhere. So it was a phantom type. It wouldn't use them for actual data. It was just being used at the type level to track things. And so you're getting errors in compile time as well. This is the benefit here, right? I'm no, sorry. Not yes, that. exactly. Yeah, so, and it sort of, it sounds similar to maybe, um, in C sharp, you often do includes of different types. And uh, it sounds a little bit similar to having uh, the compiler warn you, oh, you just tried to include the same thing twice. Like if you're just including a library, it's, it's just it's a string. You don't really get an error, I don't think. I actually, I'm not sure about that, but I don't think you get an error in C sharp because you're just passing a string. It can't really check and validate that. But you're saying, is, would that be accurate here? You're saying, no, in this case, you, you do get that. And you're, you don't have to worry. And like, you're, you're getting an error. You're not going to overwrite your settings or you're not going to include. It's not the exact same thing, but is that, is that a fair comparison? It's, it's similar, but you are choosing the domain in which that error is happening. It's not a built-in idea. It's something that you are explicitly modeling. Yes, you you made that. Yeah, exactly. It's not like including. Yeah. That's but what I'm, I'm saying right. that if that did happen in C sharp, you kind of build something like that. So it'd be sort of like if you had uh, your charting library and you wanted to be able to set the label on the x-axis and the label on the y-axis, but you didn't want to set the label on the x-axis and then set it again because that is probably an error and you only want to allow that to happen once. Yes, exactly. You'd have something at the type level that records, I have set, like true or false, I have set the x-axis label, and it would be false at the beginning. But both x and y would be false. And the function that uh, takes in the, the graph object or whatever, you know, the, whatever the data is here, would say, I work on a graph and uh, that is parameterized by false and whatever, where false is like the 
the x, the current state of the x-axis being set. And it would return a graph where that parameter is now true and whatever. So the, the sort of late set label for graph would change the type of the graph from false-false to true-false at the type level. Something like that? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. And this, of course, means you have to be able to represent true-false at the type level. So you have to represent some sort of... You might have a x-axis not set as one type and x-axis set as the other type. And this function only works on graphs that have x-axis not set for their first type parameter and whatever for their second type parameter. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I think we had uh, mentioned this earlier. So if you want to be able to do those in any order, that's possible because you can always put like t or a or whatever your your language use, uses for the parts that you don't care about. So the the setting of the y-axis says, I take a graph that has whatever for the x set kind of type parameter and y-axis not set for the second type parameter because that's the only one it cares about. Yeah. And returns a new one with, again, whatever for the first type parameter and y-axis is now set for the second type parameter. So they can be called in any order. You, you can use those. Um, you can introduce sort of new type parameters at some point and, and do minimal readjustment of things because they only care about that one type parameter that's pertinent to the job they're doing right then. Yeah. You know, there's there's actually an, another interesting uh, use case that comes to mind. In the documentation for the TypeScript language, there's a description of why they need this um, unsound feature, meaning not type safe, um, called function parameter covariance. And I, w I won't go into what that means, but that they have an example of of a listener function where you register a listener. It's is an event listener. So let's say that you pass the enum value for a mouse event and a function. And in that case, your listener receives a mouse event. So it took an argument, which was, I want to listen to mouse events, which is really just an integer, or a value of an enum, uh, which is an integer and then a function. But instead of having an unsound feature, you could also solve this problem by having enums be able to hold a phantom type parameter. So your enum value for mouse events could have a type parameter which carries what the argument type of the callback function is supposed to be. And so just based on the enum value, you can statically determine what the argument type for the function is gotcha. without having to have this unsound feature. And, and the compiler would force those to line up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then your benefit is you're not subscribing to that same event twice. Excellent. Well, I think in this case he's saying that the uh, type system is allowed to sort of make an unsafe jump in the types. It's allowed to kind of go from one type to another without it sort of sneaking in this change to the type without you explaining how that happens by mapping from an enum to a, a result type. I see. Okay. And did I understand that correctly? Yes. And and actually, that's kind of like the the power and the danger of phantom types. I apologize for like sort of dragging us off track when I thought of this, because I think it's a more prosaic and easier to understand example. The first example is by far the most exotic use of phantom types that I've ever encountered or implemented. The second one is much more prosaic, I think. And we're not trying to enforce any kind of linearity or uniqueness. With the second example, we're just trying to enforce a um, 
sort of ad hoc relationship between values of an enum, which is really an integer if you look at the original JavaScript, and function argument types. But what both cases have in common is that you are enforcing an ad hoc property with types. That is, you aren't enforcing anything about your data level consistency because there is no data. You are trying to think of a property that is supposed to be true about your program and enforcing it with types. In the first example, we're trying to enforce this uniqueness condition, which means that we have to declare all of our types to make sure that they're actually setting false to true in the right places. And in the second case, when we declare this enum with, with all the integers that are supposed to reflect the different types of events, like mouse click or key press or whatever, that the type parameters that we pass for those, for that phantom actually reflect the type that the callback system in JavaScript is actually going to pass to that function. And if we get that wrong, we don't get any help uh, as the, as the, as the author of the library. But even though this is an ad hoc mechanism for enforcing these properties, phantoms are useful because typically as the author of the API, you are far better placed to check these things and to declare what their consistency rules are than someone just trying to use the library. Yep, and, and phantoms again, a special, kind of a special case of this much more broad level idea of Let's get as much up into that type level as possible. Let's compile it to as much work for us as possible so that we sort of make it impossible on ourselves <laughs> to make these kinds of mistakes that you would normally be allowed to do. If, if the type says, hey, I only take a validated email or a form of validated email or whatever, you can't, when you look at that, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't have one of those. I need to go get one. How do I do that? Oh, I got to run it through the validation function. Okay, I'll go do it over there. Like, it really forces you to have your types correct. Like the types, um, people talk with like static functional programming, how the types sort of just guide you along. And I've definitely had this experience where I'm like, I have an A, I need a B. Well, let me find a function that takes me from A to B. Okay, that doesn't exist. Is there something that takes me from A to C and then C to B? Okay, good. I'll just glue those together and then that gets me there. And, and you just kind of, by picking out functions that have the right type signatures, that very much gets me super close or completely to my solution. And so the more that we can lift up into that type level, the more we have those kinds of experiences. Like if you're looking through all your, your helper functions and you see something that says, I, I take a form of unvalidated email and I return a form of validated email, you know exactly what that's for. And, and you might say, oh, I need a validated email. Let me go look for the function that does that. Like when you see that signature, it'll be super obvious to you that that's what's going on there. Versus a function that goes from form to form. And you're kind of like, well, that could be like a million things. I don't, I don't actually know what's going on here. You know, you have to look at the name, you gotta look at the code, try to figure it out. If you see the types changing, it give, it puts you closer, perhaps, to the, the solution that you're looking for. It, it jumps you ahead. I have a question about that. Is this a functional programming specific ideology, or it, can you also see it in object-oriented programming of type parameters? You can use some of these ideas in object-oriented programming. The thing is that you will see it a lot less. And the reason is that variables cannot change type. So if the way that you update your form is by mutating it, you're not gonna, there's no way that you can get from form of unvalidated email to form of validated email that way because of the aliasing problem. You can have alias, if you have a mutable value, you can have aliases anywhere for that 
value. So a system to try and change the type of the variable would be extremely unreliable. So as a result, you're kind of stuck when you instantiate a class in an object-oriented system. You're stuck with the value that you pass in for the type parameter when you instantiate it, and that's not going to change with mutation. In functional programming, you're producing a new value, which gives you an opportunity to pass a different type parameter, a different type argument for that parameter. So the ways in which you can use type parameters is vastly expanded. Or limited in OO, yeah. It's vastly limited by an object-oriented style. It's vastly expanded by a functional style. So you could do this in C-sharp. You're just going to end up doing something that looks a lot like functional programming because you're going to be producing new values all over the place. Yeah. In a, in a, stream, in a stream system such as C-sharp link for collections or the new Java 8 stream system, or Java 7, I can't remember. It's Java 8, I think. Yeah. yeah. They're built on, they all have to be built on producing new values precisely because of this problem. Some of the sub-operations in link and for streams entail changing the type of the stream that you have. And therefore, none of them can be like object-oriented style mutators. Right. Uh, because you can change the type. Like map. In that case. Yeah. So if you're in um, a traditional language like C-sharp and you're using these read-only data types, or if you're using a read-only data type in that environment, what you're saying is you're not really doing, that doesn't really count as OOP anymore because you're using the objects in the same way that you use you know, functional programming. You're really just doing functional programming. Yeah, you're using them as just dumb data, which is the functional programming way of, of doing things. They don't have behavior, right? You don't get to call it. Yeah, your object isn't really a, a smart object anymore. It's dumb data. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right, that I think will do it for this episode. I want to thank everyone for joining us this time, and we will talk to you later. Thank you, everyone. I hope you had a good time and enjoyed the episode. Bye, y'all. Thanks, everyone, and thanks, Stephen, for joining us for this episode. Yes, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for inviting me.